Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify and SoundCloud and anywhere you get podcasts, you can also hear us every Friday on RTE with RTE Radio 1 Extra. And every day during the week, we also keep you up to date on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. And Niall, we're kind of really looking at Microsoft this week. And they've got the, the, it's the big E3 Games Conference. Yeah, well, E3 is this week. It actually finishes up uh, the day that we go out on air. And it's one of the big gaming shows of the year. There's GDC, which is Game Developers Conference, uh, and E3 is sort of the... As you can imagine, the the customer facing one. This is the this is the one that everybody wants to go to get their hands on on the new games or to have a look at the new trailers for new games. And uh, in this case, we've got uh, a couple of notable uh, presences and one notable absence. Um, and then there was one leaked uh, thing ahead of the show as well. So we we've got a nice mix of things. Okay, well, listen, um, tell me, to who was the noticeable uh, absence? Sony. Ah, nothing, nothing there from well. Sony were not there announcing a product. I think there's two things. I think that means that Sony's up to something really big that will come later in the year next year. Uh, And I think it leaves the uh, whole thing wide open for somebody to fill that void. And who did? Uh, Yes, Microsoft did. And uh, they swooped in with uh, word of their next generation Xbox, um, Project Scarlet. And they also talked about Project xCloud. And uh, we'll we'll talk about them in turn, I suppose. Um, you might remember, or you might not. I mean, back back in the day when the um, Xbox One was being announced, there was huge launch. I think it was at E3 as well, actually. And uh, over and over again, the message was: "This is your home entertainment hub. This is, you know, it's games, but it's TV." And some very clever person edited together a um, a supercut on. For YouTube, uh, counting the number of times that they said TV at the uh, at the Xbox One reveal, and of course it was a disaster, and it led to one of the most successful um, product reveals for Sony and marketing campaigns. Because all Sony had to do was get up and say, "This is a console for people who play games." <laughs> and everyone just went nuts. They were absolutely ecstatic. You know, this well, is. I, I think there's an argument for that because you've got your multifunction device, and then you've got your device that does something very well. And I'm kind of thinking of. Um I think of printers, printers that scan and print in black and white and colour and can do this and that. And I mean, they're a bloody nightmare to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, in my field with radio, uh, the, the whole radio industry is kind of going, yes, we're going to get ourselves on mobile phones and we're going to have an app and then it's going to be brilliant and everybody will be able to listen wherever they are. And I'm kind of going, well, no, because the minute you say, I'm going to listen to the radio on my phone and you hit the app, you see a message on Messenger from your friend on Facebook who says, look at this and it links to a YouTube and two minutes later you're lost you're gone uh, or if you're in the middle of listening to the radio and somebody rings you well then the radio's gone so I'm a big believer in I like you know call me old fashioned a radio is built to do one thing and to do one thing well and that's to play some music or give you some company or information and sit in the corner of a room and it just plays 
Thank you. So this yeah, is what they're going I, I, to do with the uh, uh, the new Project Scarlet. It's all about taking the Xbox and saying the Xbox is for games and it excels at gaming. Yeah, that's effectively the marketing message. Now, of course, Microsoft has its media stuff in the background. Uh, and I actually find that its movie library is very, very good. Um, when last I, I checked it, uh, I found it a little bit annoying to navigate, but generally very, very good. So to to refocus the message on, yes, this is a gaming machine, first and foremost, I, I think this is, it's a very important move for them and one that I, I think they've nailed. Now, Project Scarlet itself is a very impressive piece of hardware. Uh, now, we don't have a price on it yet, but we do know that one of its major um, selling points is it's moving to an SSD, which means that it's going to be super, super fast. Um, it's going to move to... Uh, a Navi CPU and GPU architecture. Sorry, the, the Zen 2 and the Navi CPU and GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also going to have the capabilities of GeForce GTX 1060. So they're looking for an incredible amount of horsepower on mm. this. Some people were saying an 8K resolution at 120 frames per second. Now, bear in mind, 4K is, you know, upper, upper, upper HD already. It's what they use in cinemas. That's mm. a cinema standard. Uh, and we can only see in 30 frames per second. <laughs> 30 frames per second is, is you know, the standard um, standard uh, recording speed. I, for I, think it's, I think it's what we'd see, but I think the higher frame rate and the higher speed will uh, allow for better fluidity. Yeah, it will make things smoother, all right. But uh, just in context that, you know, the technology has, you know, it is surpassing mm. what we have, you know, in built into ourselves and so what we're getting as far as I'm concerned is a heightened representation of something as opposed to an accurate one. There was a big hoo-ha uh, about when Microsoft would reveal the new Xbox if it would include a DVD uh, drive in it. I take it it's not there. Oh, well, I mean, it's going to have to be there. Do you think? But, I don't oh, think yes, so. Of course. Act- okay. Oh, you're such an old man. <laughs> well this sort of this sort of ties in with their second big announcement ah. which is Project X Cloud okay. which speaks to your implication that um the that Project Scarlet will be a machine for the cloud mm. specifically uh, because that's what Project X Cloud is it's it's sort of Microsoft's answer to Google's product Stadia which they're taking to be sort of the Netflix of, of games, sort of. Mm. Um, so uh, Project X Cloud, yep, basically sit down, stream your games. That's it. You you pay a monthly fee uh, a la Netflix. And that's, uh, that's what the plan is. Uh, it's a model that we've seen happen years ago with on live gaming something that we talked about a long time ago and it just fell over they, yeah they but that, that was years ago that was years ago i mean since mm. then you know kind of internet speeds have gotten you know ridiculously faster uh, and also people are way more used to the subscription model now and mm. the two that i'm thinking of specifically are spotify and yeah. netflix yeah yeah and people so are kind of thinking is, yeah okay look i'll tenor a month and then i can play all of the games. Mm, yeah, yeah. Makes sense, all right. So, can we talk about individual games that yes, I'm please. excited about? Yes, because okay. you, you have one and I have one. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Uh, I'm a Gears of War junkie. I love the aesthetic of the games. Uh, I love the gameplay on them. I know they're not everybody's cup of tea. But uh, Gears of War 5 is coming. One of the neat things in it is an escape mode, which basically the idea is it's three-player co-op and you set a... a effectively a dirty bomb and it's your job to run as far away as possible from where you set set the bomb to a safe point 
uh, and it's basically run as fast as you can, evade the aliens and close the door behind you. Simple enough. I'm, I'm sure it's more complicated uh, in in person, if you will. So that's one thing that I'm looking forward to. There was a teaser trailer for Halo Infinite because, of course, Halo. Um, we're expecting it uh, Christmas 2020. So a long time between uh, now and release. Um, also, there is a game called Ghostwire Tokyo. Uh, which really has this sort of wonderful cinematic trailer for it. And it's, it seems to be kind of a, a, a rapture sort of a thing. You just see people vanish. Uh, and it's your job to sort of unlock uh, all these conspiracies mm. that are out there and, and uh, you know, verify urban legends and, and that sort of thing. So that looks really interesting. But top of my list uh, and has been for seven years because I've been waiting for this thing for so long. Um, Cyberpunk 2077. Ah, with Keanu Reeves. With Keanu Reeves doing a, I know maybe he's a full character, certainly as a cameo anyway, um, a, a game that Project CD Red um, have been working on a long, long time. This is the guys who did Witch, Witcher, uh, the Witcher series. Um, and it had a brilliant trailer in 2012. Mm. And it's been largely speculation since. I, I was somebody who played the pen and paper game when I was back Cyberpunk cyberpunk 2020 mm. so i've been waiting on this uh, and it looks absolutely fantastic uh it's certainly going to be worth the wait uh, next april is when we can expect it to well hit the shelves. uh the the one game that i'm looking forward to uh, and because i'm a more genteel person and i don't like blowing things up is uh, the new flight simulator course actually you have loved flight simulators since forever it's since forever absolutely and i've i had very early flight simulators from microsoft and i've seen them all developed and then i saw the community develop around that uh, doing new airports and stuff like that uh microsoft have been out of the game pardon the pun um for god it must be at least 10 years they uh, they haven't done anything since yeah but uh, more than 10 years and now it's like kind of you know the original big bad boy is back and they showed a video of it and it's just stunning the video is stunning and i hope to god that's real gameplay that they were showing and 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 not some uh just animation because it just looks amazing anybody i know who is into the old flight sim kind of thing and i know a lot of pilots who who, who actually do play it um uh very very much looking forward to that so um there you go well and the other good thing about it it flight sim will be included in the uh, in the microsoft games pass as well Ah, very nice. So very you, nice. You, you can have a go at it and you can kind of go, what's all this about? And also the Games Pass is going to apply to uh, PC games and not just the Xbox. Ah, well, that's really interesting because, yeah, you know, of course, there, there's a different release list for, mm. for PCs and consoles. So it'll, it'll give you a much wider range of stuff to choose from. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, listen, that was a, uh, that was a good old catch up on uh, E3 and what Microsoft have been up to. Niall, as always, thank you very much. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. We talk a lot on the show about what happens when technology goes wrong, but it's also important to remember that it can be a force for good in society. One of the great optimists in this regard is a guy called Anil Dash. Anil was an advisor to the Obama White House Office of Digital Strategy. And today, in addition to being an entrepreneur, author and blogging pioneer, he advises major startups, serves as a board member for companies like Stack Overflow and works with nonprofits like the Data and Society Research Institute, which researches at the cutting edge of tech's impact on society. Anil Dash sat down with our very own Niall Kitson at Inspire Fest to talk about his ideas for 
for a more ethical use of technology. I think art and technology have a very interesting history of collision and I look back specifically to uh, Nine Evenings that happened in New York I remember in the 1960s there or thereabouts and things have progressed since then so how do you think art has sort of moved on from being part of the avant-garde to just becoming another tool that artists are using? Well if we look at you know technology there's sort of a a fracturing there is uh, more of the um, idea of technology as a product you know and i think a lot of people still start first i think of it as a consumer experience but artists have always uh, you know used whatever tools are available especially whatever is ubiquitous and also i think have really keyed into both the aesthetic and emotional aspects of how technology surrounds us and so um i think with the ubiquity of technology these days we are seeing a resurgence maybe for the first time since the 1980s or the early 90s of digital creators who see um, you know technology and the platforms around them just as a medium as something really native to express themselves in and they're not commenting on did you know that we have computers now or did you know that we have phones now they are just assuming this is the language with which they're going to talk to one another and talk to the world and um, that's very exciting to watch I think in particular for me you know working at Glitch we are seeing people using the web as a creative medium and Perhaps 15 years ago, there were the first digital platforms, you know, GeoCities and things like that, that had a lot of artists. Um, and, and this is maybe an echo of that, that there's a sort of a, a cultural memory that this used to be a form of expression and not just a box that we put our photos into and run some filters on. And, uh, and so it's a nice uh, revival or return to a, a thing that, that used to be very, very pervasive. And when we look at spaces uh, where art has developed over time, and you go from the giant halls of nine evenings, you move into the galleries, and now you move into sort of the online space, which is kind of interesting in that you have the personal and the impersonal yeah. sort of clashing at the same time. So how, how do you think the discourse around this has changed as well? Do you think people are getting more experimental, uh, or do you think people are sort of becoming more willing to express when they don't get something, for example? Mm. For the audience, I think I think there's a much higher willingness to not only say I get this or I don't understand this, but um, is this for me? Right? It's not one scene. There's no such thing as just digital artists. Right? There are um, every community, every context has its cohort of creators, and some of them will always use these technologies as the way of expressing themselves. And so it's in every community, and everyone says, okay, this is either you know to my taste or not to my taste. But but there's not. Uh, uh, the sense that just because you're creating in digital, you have to create it for everyone who who uses these tools. I think um, there's also the sense of much higher fluency. Um, there's less explaining, less um, contextualization that's required for people to engage with a the work. They can they can get closer to just appreciating it on its merits and on what it expresses, as opposed to I think there was a lot of um, sort of meta conversation about you know the the implementation or the medium. Um, as opposed to the work itself. I think there is that point of exploration as well where sort of artists go, or even individuals go, okay, can a discussion forum be repurposed 
uh, can a social media account be repurposed? Um, I remember in particular at the time Spielberg's AI was being released, the uh, family at the centre of the story were given a fake blog uh, to, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a marketing tool that people would uh, sort of go, oh, right, OK, this is actually really plausible. Um, are we seeing that sort of collision uh, also of marketing as well, where because you have these new creative spaces, they can almost be commercialised at the, the point of inception? Yeah, there's an unavoidable commercialism to all these media. If there's anything that's engaging, I mean, I I think one of the simplest examples is you see the evolution of what companies and corporate brands are doing on social media. And they're just, uh, you know, out there in the realm of absurdity. And and that's such a big change from um, we have a press release that we're going to put out. And part of it is the people who are leading and running those efforts are uh, people who came to these medium as creators and understand not just the voice of it, but also what artists have been doing and how they've been challenging the medium. And, 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 you know, I think one of those intersections is something that often is not taken seriously. It's things like meme culture. And, you know, it's very, very simple to have some old meme be recycled by some company that wants to promote itself online. But the, the generation of, those original ideas behind the memes and the original use of those formats and, 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 and creating um, almost templates that others can use uh, so they can express themselves or shorthand for a concept is um, something artists have always done. I mean, you know, the, the, the fugue is a template for uh, creation, for, for a musician. And, and, and memes are templates in a certain way, too, that, that um, allow for a different kind of expressiveness. But those are artists creating those works. Those are artists recontextualizing an image or, uh, you know, a certain phrase or, or, or certain ideas in a way that others can build with them. I think that idea of inherently enabling others to create on the work and respond to the work is uh, a you know, centuries or millennia long trend in art that um, is having a unique uh, re-expression in technology because it makes it so easy to do. And in looking at expression as well, there's the appropriation of art by uh, sort of politics and its application in the political space as well. As somebody that has worked on a White House team, how is uh, or how are artistic um uh, how to say techniques being implemented? Say at the level of getting message out or managing e-government. So you know, particularly in the states, the focus is on campaigning, not so much governance. And they'll co-opt anything that can turn into a message or help something break out. And and that I think is going to be much more in the realm of simple memes and and, and the like, as opposed to real expression or or building on the work of, of deeper artists. Um, and, and the exception is artists who they see as an endorsement. Then their work they might they might amplify. Um, you know, I think at the other extreme, there's such an absurdity to political speech in America right now in a way that we haven't encountered um, certainly in my lifetime. And so I, I think that's something that it's very hard for artists to directly engage with. They could be you know tend to be critical or they can be. Um, responding to it, but but there's not a, a meaningful dialogue because there's not um, uh, it, it's hard to have meaningful dialogue about anything. Um, but you know the broad idea of like advocating for issues and advocating for causes. I think artists are using digital art in new ways to do this, and you see this in you know yes, people producing videos, people using social media, but but at a deeper level, they're using the tools of the web itself. They're remixing each other's work. They are creating through the sort of building blocks of the internet 
Um, and that feels like something that had been lost. Uh, and, and, and I think part of it, honestly, is a pushback against um, the ubiquity of the major platforms of, of the Facebooks and Googles of the world, uh, where artists are saying, for, you know, we can't, this is not a place for us. This is not a place where we can um, put our work and express ourselves. And so, especially in the political realm, uh, if one is making political art, political critique, uh, you have a point of view and a message, where you put that message matters as much as how you express it. One of the things that we're seeing outside sort of mainstream politics, if you will, is the application of digital platforms in simple activism, where we're seeing things happening uh, at street level. Um, how do you think this is working out? Is it a case of platform gains relevancy or kudos if it's applied to, uh, to certain causes? I think it can be the case that a platform can be legitimized by its use by activists. I think um, activists are very pragmatic and often resource-constrained, so they're going to focus on things that work very well. And I think people intuitively understand that, so they see their use of a, t of a technology as a legitimization, that this must really work if these folks who have such limited resources are choosing to put them into this. Um, I think there is a similar reckoning that's happening with the change in attitudes about, say, Facebook or Twitter or other major social networks where uh, people who have something to say don't necessarily trust that those are the platforms for them anymore. They certainly understand that those are designed to for economic extraction, and they might not have the money, the resources to pay to get attention on, on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. And so I think um, th that is what's driving a bit of you know what uh, I've been thinking about is a re-engagement with the open web, uh, you know, or a renaissance of... Uh, the web itself, activists in particular know that um, uh, the choosing your your battleground, choosing your arena, uh, has as much to do with your, your chances of success as your messages, as your tactics, as your audience, and all the other things that you do. Um, and so, I think that sense of you know what I hear actually across the spectrum, all manner of artists and activists saying, um, "How can I?" espouse the values that I do or communicate the message that I do and then do so under the terms of, you know, the way that Facebook promotes content, you know, or uh, under the, the, um, the sort of heavy burden of YouTube's recommendation algorithm. Those are things that feel incompatible with the kind of expression that artists uh, really crave and that activists need. One of your other core interests is ethics and the application of ethics to technology. What's interesting here to me is how we're seeing a resurgence in the humanities, uh, and particularly in, in philosophy, that we are seeing Facebooks and Microsofts having uh, in-house ethicists uh, at this stage. Are we finally seeing uh, a commercial use for philosophy if somebody is going to college and they say, I'm doing a career in philosophy that their parents won't keel over? There's a change, absolutely. I think those companies are responding to the moment, you know, culturally, politically, what's happening. Um, and I, I think the people, you know, at a Facebook or Microsoft who hire those those um, philosophers, ethicists, and the like, I think they're very sincere. Uh, is the orientation of the organizations that these are central roles that are going to be valued the way that programmers are? I, I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, uh, in terms of career planning for uh, philosopher philosophy majors, I, I'm not sure if that's uh, that's a, that's a higher challenge. I think, um, you know, my experience is that. Um, most companies will hire someone who um, ticks the box that now we have ethics um, but that 
ethicists may have a deeper challenge than the organization is willing to engage with. And very seldom does that end up um, resolved to the satisfaction of the ethicist. And, and I think, you know, an example of that is, is you know, one narrow application of these, these kinds of approaches is, is on inclusion and diversity and the like. And I, I see a pattern where big companies will, I think, very in a very well-intentioned way, hire someone into a big role as now you're in charge of diversity and inclusion at a company. And those people will quietly leave a year later, two years later, um, frustrated uh, and or feeling that they had been not as effective as they'd hoped. And the organization will go through and repeat that cycle again. I hope that's not the case. I think um, the measure of any institution's values, but especially a a for-profit company's values, is where they put their resources, where they put their money. I have not seen anyone in a role as a philosopher or ethicist at a major tech company who has the power to hire or fire people. Uh, That is the indication of who has power in an organization. Your main project at the moment is Glitch. So tell me a little bit about uh, what it is and how it works. So Glitch is a friendly community where millions of people are creating the web together. And it's everything from uh, web apps to little simple web pages. And it is both, you know, I think from an ordinary user standpoint, almost almost a bit like an app store. Here are all these different experiences that I can have or that I want to use, um, but with a lot more heart and soul. So it's not just here's a promotion for the latest giant blockbuster film or, or what have you, uh, but things that individuals made to either meet their own needs or to express an idea that they had or to do something funny or artistic or expressive. Um, and then uh, it's a really remarkable set of creative tools. And so you have the ability to um, create apps together, you know, in the way that people write in Google Docs and create together, uh, but writing code that is instantly launched as a website or as a web app um, while, you, while you type. Uh, and so that's something that people haven't been able to do before. And, um, and it's been extraordinary to watch. I mean, we had an idea that this might be compelling, but um, to see so many people respond to where, you know, every 10 seconds somebody creates a new project on Glitch, um, that is a, it's just been an extraordinary, um, you know, I think validation of how much uh, people were hungry for a way to create the web, not just consume it. Uh, and I suppose this speaks to your own experience uh, at the very start of the web where you work, you were using and working on blogging platforms and sort of exploring the, uh, the benefits thereof. How do you think the web has changed the way people communicate? Are people getting more coarse? Are people thinking more about what they're writing? Uh, is it balance between the two? I think that the web has evolved where it amplifies whatever it is that you bring to it. And so if you are bringing your um, you know, justifiable fears and trepidations about the state of online discourse, that will be manifested. Uh, but if you are bringing that sort of openness and adventuring and uh, excitement that also drew a lot of us to these um, platforms, that's still there. I think that's something that goes overlooked. And, and, and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is we rightfully and fairly are worried about how awful um, so much online discourse is and so much of the uh, environment of being online is. Um, but, and that's true, and we need to prevent that. But what's interesting, I see in the particular case of glitches, as we've done a lot of work to prevent the worst harms, there's been a, a, 
a flourishing or a revival of the best parts of people saying, I didn't know I could do this, or I didn't know I had these ideas out there, or I didn't know anyone else was interested in what I'm interested in. And those feel in a lot of ways a bit like the early days where it was just a sense of discovery and excitement. And um, I think people are so relieved to see that that positive human impulse, that creative expressive impulse is still there. And that was Niall Kitson speaking with Anil Dash. That's almost it for our show this week. Just before we go, Niall, do we have a, a one more thing we couldn't quite fit into the show that's on the website? Sure, yeah. Uh, some good news from NUI Galway as... Um Two scientists have had a very interesting piece of hardware picked up by the European Space Agency. You can get the lowdown on that and all things tech here in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get podcasts and of course listen to us each Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio and Extones. Next time from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.